Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. No doubt, the book of 1 John has caused me more than a little trouble these past couple of weeks. It kept taking me where me and my stubbornness simply did not want to go. It kept suggesting uncomfortable things about relationships that I like to think I have comfortably in hand, especially my relationship with God, for example. It frustrated me because over and over again, the book crossed my well-drawn theological boundaries and said things in a way that I thought could only lead to trouble and misunderstanding. It robbed me of distinctions with which I have grown very comfortable. It has this all-or-nothing approach that I found to be very unsettling. For example, John blurs the distinction between love and keeping God's commandments. You see, in my thinking, the two might be related, but love is a much bigger concept than obedience. So I tend to assume that I can love God and other people just fine, even when I do not obey him. So, for example, if I break the, first command, the fourth commandment and fail to honor those in authority over me, that doesn't mean that I don't love God or honor him, for heaven's sakes. If some of you break the sixth commandment and sleep with your girlfriend, for example, I'm sure that you have no trouble claiming that in that act you're showing your love to her. You have no trouble claiming that you love God as well. We break the first commandment and in our pride believe that we are loving ourselves appropriately as our culture has taught us to do. We are very good at justifying our sin and acting as if it has nothing to do with our love for God or for other people. Love, after all, is a feeling of commitment or an emotion which frees the human spirit. It's not obedience. And so for the most part, God is fine with the ways that we love. But John says otherwise. In one place he writes, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And again, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And in our text for today, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. The implications are uncomfortable. I don't love rightly. Maybe God doesn't love me at all. Closely related, John also overrides the distinctions that we make between loving God and loving our brothers. That distinction comes in handy when we want to avoid getting involved in all the messy details of life. It enables us to proclaim our love to God even as we ignore those around us who are in need. It frees us, you see, to argue about how we should worship God and to theoretically discuss what is most pleasing to him without thinking about actually serving our troubled and hurting brothers and sisters. But John blurs the common sense distinction, so he says things like, Whoever has material possessions and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And he says, we have this commandment from him. 
that the one who loves God loves also his brother. And the text, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So often we look at our brothers and sisters and don't even see God. In fact, we forget all about God. It's a nice kind of practical atheism, isn't it? We have no stomach for loving our brothers as God asks us to. John also problematizes the distinction that we make between faith and love. We are very careful to keep the two concepts in their proper relationship, aren't we? They're, they're connected, but love is usually seen as secondary because we don't want to be heard talking as if we can earn our way to salvation by how great our love is. And so when push comes to shove, faith always trumps love. For example, we frequently preach that we are sinners and that we often fail to love other people as we should and keep God's commandments. But in the end, we conclude that none of that really matters because we have been given the gift of faith in Christ. And so our moral failings are really of no great account. Sin is not really any problem that we need to worry about. God's works really aren't that important. It's faith that saves, and thank God that's what we have. But again, John cuts away at that neat distinction. So he writes, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. And again, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the text says the same thing about those who believe. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You see, the one who believes and the one who loves are one and the same, two sides of the same coin. If you don't keep the commandments, you don't love. And what does that say about your faith? Are you so sure that your faith is genuine? Is it good enough? Is it to be trusted? Maybe you're just deluding yourself and you don't believe at all. God commands, you disobey. We know that, and we know that that's neither faith nor love. The serious reader of 1 John is made to wonder where he or she really stands with God. And now with that in mind, listen to one final word from John. He who sins is of the devil. What? In one sentence, John dismisses us to hell. How can there not be any theological nuancing? Don't we need to make some kind of a distinction here? That can't be me. But how can it not be me? Like Nathan's, you are the man. Like Christ's, get behind me, Satan. Like the judgment, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Today, we hear a damning verdict. At every turn, John seems to confront us with our sin, and we fool ourselves into thinking that that's okay. But we can fool ourselves no longer. John exposes us as sinners and therefore of the devil. He doesn't make a distinction. What are we supposed to do to be saved? You see, we have no words. We have no self-defense to escape that verdict. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me.
Well, today, if that is your plea, it is my place to tell you that God has decided to hear your plea. God has decided to show you mercy. God has decided to give you his grace. At the command and in the place of our Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the words of John himself, the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sins. And again, Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And again, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And again, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. You can believe it. He has given you his word. Now you see those marvelous works for which we praise God in Psalm 98 a few minutes ago are not only works that God has done in a distant time and place. The marvel is what he has done for you today, right now, at this moment. He has saved you from death, and he has given you eternal life. You have heard it with your own ears, and that's what has happened. Who else can get you out of hell but God and the word from him that he has given you. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has indeed done marvelous things. Amen. Now may the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which passes all our understanding, keep your hearts and minds together in Christ Jesus. Amen.